All of us long for those vacation days when we can turn the alarm clock off and we can just roll over. But whether you are a school kid in the middle of summer vacation, an executive on a two-week release from the responsibilities of work, or a new retiree, you have discovered that life without a reason to get up in the morning can get mighty boring. Each of us needs a good reason for living. And in the next few minutes, our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Woodson, is going to tell us about a life purpose that makes even a Mission Impossible plot seem dull. Some of you that are older like me can remember a TV show that began in the post office and there would be a tape recorder. And when you got that tape recorder, it came on with a really neat theme. In fact, it was one of the very first times that they put kind of a real upbeat theme with it. And the tape recorder would arrive and the recorder would come on. It was one of those old-fashioned jobs, you know, the, the reel-to-reel before we had all these little cassettes you could put in. And the name of the program was Mission Impossible. As soon as the mission was given out, the tape recorder would smoke and then suddenly it would go poof and it would be gone. And then that would initiate the program. An exciting hour, week after week, Mission Impossible, as, as James Arness's brother took us into all kinds of weird and exotic and exciting adventures. And that program went on TV just week after week and year after year. And it shows how that idea, Mission Impossible, will go on. So I want you to ask yourself, what is your mission in life? If suddenly you were cut off from the land of the living and your loved ones gather together, what are they going to remember about you? What are they going to remember about me? I think it's important for us to think that way about our church. What is our church remembered for? What is our church's mission? You know, we've just finished studying the book of 1 Peter and we've learned about this fledgling little group of believers up there in the, the southern shores of the Black Sea and what is today modern Turkey. We've gone through five chapters and, and learned that the Apostle Peter told them about the trials they would face. And we've learned all kinds of lessons about, about the reason for testing our life and about the fact that the Apostle Peter could challenge a small group of people that it's still worthwhile to commit yourself to Christ dying for our sins, to Christ rose again from the dead. And we heard the Apostle Peter teaching us about leadership, teaching us about how to live in our marriages and all kinds of things. But before we plunge into another one of our usual studies where we're going through a book, I want to spend a few weeks talking to you about your mission as an individual. In fact, usually when we think of the word mission, we think of missions, right? As soon as I mention the word mission to you, you think in terms of missions. And then you automatically begin to make some jumps, getting on a 747 and being in several different time zones from us. Most of us think of missions as something that we do from time to time. Maybe we do a short-term mission. Maybe we are involved in helping to support foreign missions. But I want us over the next several weeks to think bigger than that. And I want us to think broader than that. Because as I've been thinking about going into eternity, it makes eternity very real. It's not just something that's out there. It's something that, that I've actually witnessed, which I often do. In fact, there's hardly a, a week that goes by or a couple weeks that go by that I'm not in some kind of a situation where somebody's very much on the edge of eternity. In reality, all of us are on the edge of eternity, aren't we? 
And that's why it's so important, whether we be a little child, whether we be a young teenager, whether we be a young adult that's in the prime of what physical life would be and looking for with great expectations, or whether we be an older person that maybe, as somebody said, he's on the backside of the bell curve. And whether wherever you might fit in, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, what in the world am I doing? In the world, what's my mission? I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Because in Acts chapter 1, as we begin the second treatise by the Apostle Luke, we have the Apostle Luke focusing for us, really through the command of the Lord Jesus, exactly what our mission should be. I want to raise this issue today. It's a very strategic time that we're reading about in Acts chapter 1. It's just before the Lord ascends to heaven. A lot of you have probably not been able to witness the explosion of the space shuttle from Cape Kennedy in person. Maybe some of you had. Almost all of you have seen it on TV. There's just something. Now, the space program doesn't have near the, the power and the thrill that it used to have. I, mean, I remember sitting in a grammar school classroom. This will label me. When Alan Shepard went up for the first time, this old black and white TV in front of us, when Alan Shepard went up for the first time, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and you know, this little rocket at that time, and Alan Shepard was blasted up into a very brief orbit, and we all rejoiced because we were getting ready to overtake the Russians in the space program. And I want you to know that, to be honest with you, it doesn't do much for me anymore. But Acts chapter 1 talks to us about a launch that we need to remember and we still need to be excited about. And only the Holy Spirit can help us to do that. This space shot, you didn't need any Cape Kennedy. You didn't need any space suit. You didn't need any jet-propelled, liquid-propelled rocket fuel. You didn't need thousands and thousands of people working at NASA to make it happen. We're going to talk about a launch where a man just stood on the launching pad of Mount Olivet. And when he got through giving the instructions that we're going to talk about today, suddenly he just began to rise into the air. And he made the journey, that journey from physical life to immaterial life. The journey from this present way of time and space and this present existence, just like that, he rose and he was caught up into the Shekinah glory of God and he made the journey where we want to go someday, where we want to be very, very sure that when we're absent from the body, that we're launched in a split second of time and we're safely in the arms of God. God in the scripture calls it Abraham's bosom. It talks about a place of comfort and of, and of warmth. It's called paradise. It's called paradise because it's such an incredible place. It's called the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. And part of what Jesus is talking to us about in this text of Acts chapter 1 is that our mission involves bringing a message to the world, which is the only message that's ever been given on planet Earth that can assure somebody that when it comes time for their launch from physical life into whatever's out there, that they can be sure they're going to make a safe journey. The Apostle Luke begins talking about the fact that we can depend upon what he's teaching us. Because when we talk about this transition from physical life to spiritual life, when we talk about ending this present existence that we have and going into the future existence, we need to be very sure that we've got the right material. And that's why the Apostle Luke begins like this. Look at it in Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, by the way, the very name Theophilus means lover of God. You can easily remember that. God in Greek is theos. 
The word to love or to be a friend of somebody is phileo. So you put the name together. Theo, God. Phileo, friend of. So Theophilus' very, very name means the friend of God. Evidently, he was a wealthy Roman patron. In fact, in the ancient world, when you wanted to write a book, you didn't do what Mary and I do in our present culture. I call my friends up and I say, I've got another real exciting book I want you to publish, and I'm always enthusiastic about it, and I've got a proposal here, and I send it to you, and then they review it by a committee, and then they send it back to me and say whether they think it's a trash idea or a good idea. If they think it's a good idea, then we sign the contracts, and a few months later or a few years later sometimes, it comes to the publisher. In the ancient world, you didn't do it like that. They didn't have publishers like that. What you would do is get a wealthy patron and you would go to him and appeal to this person who the Lord has blessed with funds and they become the one that will finance your publication. They'll also be very, very careful to be sure that your work is passed on. So we can be really thankful to Theophilus, this man that God has blessed, because we have the book not only of Acts but also of Luke because of this wealthy, probably a Roman aristocrat who was blessed materially, but more importantly, was anointed by the Spirit of God so that that Dr. Luke wrote him these two extensive treatises that begin by telling us about what Jesus began to do and to teach and then conclude with the movement of the early church and the power of the Spirit being upon them. He says in my former book, in my former book, that would be the book of... That's right. I wrote... What did I do in the book of Luke? I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So where does the book of Luke begin? What story does the book of Luke begin with? Unlike the Gospel of Mark, unlike the Gospel of John, the book of Luke begins, just like Dr. Luke is saying, with a beginning. It begins with the birth of Jesus. You have the most extensive narratives of the birth of Jesus. And then where does the book of Luke close? It begins with the birth of Jesus and it closes with the... Ascension, really. It even talks about Jesus going into heaven. So there's kind of an overlap between the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Now, I want you to notice something. Luke said that in the book of Luke, he wrote about what Jesus began to do and to teach. So what would that imply about the continuing ministry of Jesus? It implies, doesn't it, that it hasn't ended. Did you see that? I think that's very important. Luke says in the, in the Gospel of Luke, when I told the story of the birth of Jesus all the way until the ascension of Jesus, that was only what Jesus began to do and to teach. When we think about my dad's ministry, it began very much when he accepted Christ as his Savior at 19, and then it concluded just before his 83rd birthday. In other words, I can't tell you that this was what Jack Wurtson began to do and to teach. That's what he did. He ministered for the Lord from 19 until 82, almost 83. But isn't it great to be able to read, when we study the life of Jesus, we can begin with his birth in Bethlehem, but it never ends. What he began to do and to teach keeps moving and moving and moving and moving, and it's still moving today. And that's at the heartbeat of what this mission is. Every one of you is an individual. Every one of you in your job you can be part of this continuing ministry of the person of Jesus. In fact, that's really what the whole book of Acts is about. It shows us how the continued ministry of Jesus, now not ministering just physically, not just ministering through his earthly body, 
But now because he's ascended to heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit to live among us, now he multiplies himself tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold. And now there's an incredible thing happening. And what we're going to be doing over the next several times together is I'm going to catch you up into the immensity of what God is doing in the world. And unlike the program Mission Impossible, this mission's not impossible. It's impossible from a human standpoint, but it's not impossible when the Holy Spirit is upon us. And the incredible thing, I couldn't write that about any other man. No other man could I say, no, I wrote you about a man who was born in Bethlehem. He died on Calvary. And then that was only the beginning of what he did and what he taught. I couldn't say that about anybody. But I can say that about Jesus. Isn't that incredible? And the Apostle Luke goes on and shares how we know that that's true. Because one of the things that I've really been thinking a lot about is how can it be really confident? You know, when you're holding on to a loved one's hand and suddenly they make that transition to eternity, it makes you really think. Right in our society, there are very prominent, influential people that say Jesus isn't the answer, Buddha is the answer. And mysticism and Eastern thinking, that's the answer. If the Lord tarries more and more, you're going to be exposed to alternatives. And I want you to realize that we need to ask the honest questions. We need to ask the hard questions. We need to realize that we're in a tremendous conflict. And some of you are going to be tempted as the years go by to move away, to move away from following Christ. And you're going to say, no, I'm going to commit my life to something else. And what I want you to remember is that you're only going to live your life one time. Like my dad only got to live his life one time. And when his life energy ended and his heart stopped, he lived his life for something. So are you. And it's very important for us to ask ourselves, why do we live for what we live for? And is it going to be worth it? And the the incredible thing about the Bible is that the Bible challenges you. The young people that have questions, rather than the Bible saying, don't ask those questions. You know, why did you ask me about the relationship between Jesus and Buddha? And why should I follow Jesus and not follow Buddha? Or what about all the differences of opinion about the Word of God? Don't ask me about that. The incredible thing about the Bible, and this is unlike some of the churches that I've been exposed to, is the Bible invites free inquiry. The Bible invites you to study for yourself. The Bible invites you to ask the questions. There has been no life, there has been no religious literature that has been subjected to more critical thinking and more examination than the book that we study every time we get together. And I want you to feel that Dr. Luke, way back in the first century, felt the tension of maybe everyone won't understand what Jesus really did. Maybe there will be some inaccurate things said about him. And people will be asking the question, can I be sure about his miracles and about his death on the cross and then his resurrection, can I be sure that it's really true? It's almost as if Dr. Luke, way back in the first century, anticipated that down through the centuries, we would be asking questions like this. And that's why he says what he does in the next part of his introduction. Look what he says. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit... Now look at verse 3. It talks about witnesses and evidence. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men... And he gave many, what? Everyone tell me. He gave many, he gave many convincing. What is a convincing proof? 
What Jesus did is he showed us a great story. It was a great flick. It was a motivation of love. It was a great challenge. Is that what it says here? No. It says that Jesus gave us many convincing proofs that he what? That he was alive. The thing that you need to nail down about the mission of your life, one of the most basic things that I need to decide and that you need to decide is that there are convincing proofs that Jesus is alive. In fact, that's the bottom line. A lot of young people ask me, Dave, why are you giving your life to Jesus? And there's so many other religious options in our society today. Why do you give your life to Jesus? And there's one basic reason. He is alive. And there are convincing proofs that he is alive. And I would challenge every one of you over the next several days, I would challenge you to begin with Matthew. Go ahead and just begin with the eyewitness accounts, the first century accounts. Just start reading them. And some of you that might be wondering, boy, I'm not sure this Jesus thing, and I'm not so sure that I should really live for him, and I'm not sure I should really believe in him. I'm not sure that I should pour all my life energy into him. What I would challenge you to do is just begin with Matthew and take your notebook out and say reasons to believe and put on one side of your paper why I will not believe and put on the other side why I will believe and get it down, nail it down, nail it down. You need to go through those Gospels. You need to ask yourself, as I'm reading these Gospels, does this seem to be a bunch of lies? Do these people that are telling me about the life of Christ seem to be the kind of people that I meet in my work day by day who deceive me and who con me? As I'm reading this material and I open my heart to it, do I seem to learn more about the way life really is? Or does it seem to be the kind of stuff that I often am exposed to that after I think about it for a few years or a few months, it just seems to become not true anymore? That's what you need to do with the Word of God. You need to go back and read the crucifixion accounts. Read the resurrection accounts. You see, what Satan wants to do is to suck you away from reading it. That's what he does with me. He gets me really busy. And he takes me away from the convincing proofs. And then I start to waffle. And then I start to wonder. And when I go to witness to somebody about the resurrected Christ and that he is alive, I'm tenuous about it. I'm not sure about it. Why do I feel like that? And I'm being really honest with you. It's because I've gotten away from listening to convincing proofs. God will open your heart. God will reveal the truth to you. Your faith is not built on sinking sand. And what Luke reminds Theophilus, this Roman or a Greek aristocrat, he says, Theophilus, the essence of our faith is that we are following the only Savior that's ever lived that conquered death, who rose again from the dead. And there are convincing proofs that he gave us that it's true. So what you need to do, like if you're not going to follow Christ with all your heart, then you need to write down in the piece of paper, I think Peter lied to me. I think Peter lied when he wrote down when he wrote down that when he went to the empty tomb and he looked on that shelf and he saw those grave clothes there, that he began to go over into his mind what happens here. The only explanation is that Jesus rose again from the dead. And later on that night, when Peter tells us that Jesus himself appeared to him, if you're not going to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, if you're going to believe in something else, then you need to write down your paper, I think Peter lied because... Of so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I want to share something else with you. That's where the, the whole bedrock of your faith will flow from that. And I want to share with you that it will probably not be an intellectual reason why you wander away and why you decide that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. 
Bertrand Russell was one of, the, one of the most powerful atheists of the past generation. Bertrand Russell would travel all over the English Empire and writing treaties after treaties against the living God, against the Ten Commandments, against the empty tomb, against Jesus Christ. He's one of the most powerful forces in pulling the universities of Britain away from a commitment to the Word of God. Now, was that all an intellectual thing? No. If you read Churchill's biography, you'll read just kind of as a footnote, as you're going through it, it talks about one of the lords of England, and as World War I was beginning to break out, it mentions that this lord, with his wife, with his wife's lover, was all wringing their hands, all worried about World War I breaking out. And it mentioned, just kind of as an aside, that Bertrand Russell had this mistress who was married to this lord. So what Bert Russell was doing was committing adultery. Again and again and again. Now, does that mean that it was just an intellectual thing? Why do you think he didn't want to believe that Jesus was alive? Why do you think that Bertrand Russell wanted to come up with brilliant arguments against the Word of God? Because he wanted to live his life the way he wanted to live it. He wanted to live in this fast pace and, and have all this aristocracy and all this money. And he wanted to be able to have his sexuality any way he pleases. And I want you to realize again and again and again, what pulled us away from the convincing proofs, what pulls us away from the fact that Christ is alive, what makes us get away from that mission of trying to reach other people, it's when we start to want to live opposed to the moral standards of God. There are convincing proofs. So a lot of our high school students will graduate. They'll go away to university and they enter a, a great challenging time of their life. Many of them will be tempted to move away from the convincing proofs. And I want to challenge you that it's going to begin with a Bertrand Russell in the classroom that begins to come up with all the alternatives and trying to poke hold in this book. And often it will be someone who never really reads this book with an open heart never really tries to understand what the Scripture is really saying. They're just reading it to justify a lifestyle. But many times they grab a hold of the mind of the young and they begin to pull them away. And those kids lose their mission. They lose their mission. They begin to focus on just living for now. And all we need to pray is that our young people, as they move into this next phase of their life, that they won't slip away from. He is risen. He is risen. He's alive. The Apostle Luke is telling us, you can examine it, study the documents. If you have doubts about your faith, I would challenge you to begin tonight, before you go to bed. Open up the book, open up to Matthew, open up to the Gospel of Luke, and begin to read it like I was just sharing. And decide, as you're reading through it, you decide whether you're going to live your life based on the fact that Jesus is alive. Let the convincing proofs, open your heart to them, think about them carefully. Right now is a great time for us to think through again. What do I believe? What is my mission? What about that bedrock convincing proof that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The first thing I want you to get a hold of today is that there are convincing proofs that Jesus is alive. The next thing I want you to begin to think about is I want you to begin to think about the kingdom that you represent. Over the next several times we get together, a lot of it's going to focus in the kingdom. You read down a little bit further, you notice that the disciples ask 
in verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What was on the minds of the disciples was the kingdom of God. You know what galvanizes people? What's the essential heartbeat of what I need to be committed to Christ about? And it's the fact that he's alive, proved by many convincing proofs. The second thing that we need to ask ourselves is, what about this kingdom? You see, every one of you, as young people especially, are going to be pulled into dreams. As I watch the Olympics, and the beautiful music is singing, there's the dream, there's the dream, it's the dream of love. That really moves us. Candles, these tremendous lights, thousands of children singing, singing about the world, thinking about the world being devoted to love. What's going on there? It's a commitment to a dream. It's a commitment to a belief that things can be different. What is your dream about what can make things different? What's bigger than your job? What's bigger than just your daily schedule? What's the vision that you're caught up into? What are you committed to? Because something's going to grab you. You're going to get grabbed by politics. A, a, a politician's going to tell you, I've got a dream. I've got a dream. And, and they're going to get you to pour your energy into that. There's nothing wrong with it up to a point. But you need to be very careful. What is the politician really promising me? And can they deliver? And what I want you to begin to think about, when Jesus talked about a kingdom, the next time we get together, we're going to talk about Jesus' dream. Jesus' vision of what this world ought to be. What is it like? Why is it worthwhile following the Lord Jesus? Why should you choose him above all others? From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was announced by an angel that Jesus would be a king. And he would have a kingdom. And as the Gospel of Luke developed, we're going to find out, it was announced by an angel, it was announced by the Apostle John, and then Jesus announced it himself. And so what we need to wrestle with is what kingdom did Jesus announce? What is his kingdom like? What's wrong now in the world? If Jesus is such a great king, then why is this world all messed up? Why do people ask me again and again and again, if Jesus is king and if God is ruling and if God is good, then why is everything in such a chaotic, disastrous mess? It looks to me like we need to find another king because the present, if Jesus is the king, it's not working out too well. What about the delay in the kingdom of God? It's the tension of the delay in the kingdom of God. In preparation for that, I challenge you, start reading through the book of Luke. And as you're reading, it won't take you that long to do it. Jot down references to the kingdom. What was the kingdom of God? What was it like? What did Jesus promise about it? What's the nature of it today? What did the disciples think that it was? Because the disciples, just before Jesus was blasted into eternity... The disciples asked the question, will you at this time restore the kingdom? How did Jesus answer? Because if we're going to understand our mission, if we're going to understand our mission, why should we bring the message of the living Christ into our jobs this week? Why should we take him into our schools? Why should we talk about it in our neighborhood? It all has to do with the authority of his kingdom and the goodness of his kingdom. You know, a lot of you, when you go into your jobs tomorrow, and I think especially the students, because I feel this way, when I go out among the secular society, I feel intimidated often. I feel like maybe other people are involved in something more important than I am. How many of you have ever been in a situation where people were talking about what they did with their lives and you felt relatively unimportant? You felt like, what in the world am I doing? Anybody ever feel that way? 
You ever sit down with a jet setter, maybe a big corporation executive, and they're flying here in their Lear, and they're flying over there in their Lear, and they're in Japan one week, and they're in Budapest the next? And you can begin feeling like, man, who am I? What do I do? Your problem, your problem when you feel like that, your problem is that you don't understand the power of the kingdom. You don't understand the power of what Jesus Christ has really involved you in. And one of the things that I've really learned through my dad's life. My dad never graduated from high school even. My dad never went to Dallas Theological Seminary. He went to evening school in his Bible studies, and my dad in his Bible study had to be given an honorary degree because he was so busy selling insurance, and he was so busy with his street meetings that he didn't have time to finish all of his assignments. And there's one impact, there's one focus that my dad had. At 19 years of age, my dad came to believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He is risen. He was a 19-year-old dance band leader. That's what he did in New York City. He had like a, a Dick Clark big band kind of a thing. And he led dances all over New York City when he was just 18. And that was his life. And he would go in the summertime and be in like in a cavalry band. It was the last mounted band that the, that the army had. And they would go away to camp because they had to pretend they were soldiers at least once a year. And in the summertime, they'd go away to camp. And what they would do at camp is they'd play cowboys and Indians where they play military. In the daytime, they'd get drunk all night long. And the year before, when they went to camp, a guy named George Schilling was the main party goer of the whole camp. He got drunk as a skunk every night he was there. In fact, one night he got so drunk that he was going to go right into the colonel's tent and just spit on him, you know, just kind of put a big chunk of tobacco juice and everything right in the colonel. And my dad and some friends of his decided that wasn't going to be such a good idea, so they convinced him to spit on the outside of the tent. And when they left him, he had chinned up to the top of the flagpole, stone drunk. That was George Schilling. But somewhere in between that one camp one summer till the next summer, somebody reached George with Jesus died for our sins, he is risen. And George Schilling invited Jesus into his heart, and he began to tell all of his buddies at that army camp, during their getaway, Jesus Christ died for my sins, he died for your sins. And he started handing them out Gospel to John. And my dad took those Gospels to John. If I heard my dad say it once, I heard my dad say it over and over again. When I was a little kid, I used to travel with my dad, and I'd, I'd go one meeting after another, and every single night my dad would talk about tearing up those Gospels to John. My dad would just tear it up. How many of you have ever had someone tear up a track? Right after my dad died, right after my dad died, I went to McDonald's. And my dad always had track in his pocket, so I grabbed this track. It was the story of his life. It's called A Passport to Heaven. I went to hand it to the girl at McDonald's, and she said, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want that junk. Have you ever had anyone do that to you? You know how I react to that? I put the track back in my pocket, don't you? That's what a lot of you have started doing in your neighborhood. Your neighbors don't respond that well to you. At school, they don't respond to you. You're, you're praying for the people at work, and they start calling you an oddball. But you know, there was a man standing right there at the McDonald's, right next to the girl. She said, no. I, I looked at him and said, listen, my dad just passed into eternity. This can give you certainty that you can be sure you know where you're going when you die. And I handed it to him. Two kinds of people. He reached out gladly and took it. The girl said no. But what we're all tempted to do is to stop sharing. And George Schilling did not quit. My dad tore it up, got mad at him, cussed him out. But finally my dad took one of those Gospels of John and stuck him in his pocket. 
And George took my dad to an evangelistic meeting, calmed him into it. He told him he needed a trombonist. So my dad actually went as an unbeliever and played a trombone solo in an evangelistic meeting before he knew the Lord. And the preacher that night shared the gospel very, very clearly. In fact, he was so strong about hell and about the fact that you could be lost forever that George tried desperately to call my dad and say, Jack, I'm sorry you took it. The preacher was way out of bounds. He preached so strongly about it. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to perish. You know, I don't want to turn you off. But George couldn't get through that. The telephone didn't work. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, my dad woke up. He couldn't sleep. My dad would say, he would say, that gospel of John that I tore up suddenly tore me up. And he got down on his knees and he invited Jesus into his heart. Our whole family history changed in that moment of time. But there's one thing as my dad passed on into eternity, the one thing that was said about him over and over and over again, he was focused on Jesus. He lived for Jesus. Everybody that he tried to meet He tried to share with them what happened to him when he was 19. And what I want us to realize, it's an old story, it's a simple story, but I challenge every one of you, when you make your transition to eternity and your family gathers around and says, what did you live for? If they're able to say, they lived for the convincing proofs that Luke shared in Acts chapter 1, he's alive. And they sought in their job, they sought in their friendships, they sought in their family to help others to come to know this precious Christ, then you will not have run in vain. Because your life will start having rippling effects that you can't even imagine. And that's what we need to. You know, what I did through my dad's death was recommit myself that on the second half of the bell curve, I want to keep running for just that purpose. It's not a mission impossible. It's a mission possible. Because the Holy Spirit has come into our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the introduction of the gospel of Acts. It's the gospel of action. Lord, a lot of the guys and girls that we work with think that this Christian stuff is a question of going to church every Sunday and trying to live a good life. They don't get it. They don't understand that salvation is just a gift. That you can go to church every single weekend and it won't cover your sin. Because only Jesus can do that. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would help us to, as a group of believers, to refocus our mission. Maybe some of us have wandered away from our mission and we've started to allow a lot of extraneous things to draw us away and to consume our time. And maybe we're really stressed out about it. And I ask you, Lord, that you would use our study today to remind us about the basic thing, the big thing, the mission that we need to accomplish to become part of of bringing the story of the fact that Jesus is risen, he is risen indeed into every nook and cranny of this planet. And I would ask you, Lord, as a result of our study over the next several weeks, that we would not just think of missions as something that a foreign missionary does, but that we would realize that with modern transportation, with the way that our jobs work, whisked away to Japan or whisked away to Europe, Lord, we live in a different day. And what we can realize is rather than just putting in time, rather than just having fun experiences, every one of the opportunities and contacts that you make for us can be windows into helping people to come to know Jesus who can prepare them for eternity. Lord, I can't think of anything more exciting than helping each one of this extended body of Christ really beginning to live. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And going out into a day anxious 
for you to bring other people into our lives who need to hear that message. Help us to continue to have hearts that are enthusiastic and powerfully involved in bringing the reality of Jesus into everyone's heart and life that we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.